like everybody goes their own way. So when you have things that are difficult to understand, then you go to other places in the scripture that kind of clarify that. So that's why I have those uh, handouts for you this morning. Uh, so let's read the entire section. We're going to go 5 through 10 to start out with. For if we have been united with him in, his, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So again, we need to emphasize that what Paul is doing here is he is still dealing with that false objection uh, to his teachings that we, that we read about in verse 1 that says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's still dealing with that same question. Uh, that is the key to understanding and correctly studying this chapter. He is refuting that objection and showing us just how evil and how ludicrous that objection truly is. And so to that end, he draws two deductions, uh, which we stated before, that stem from the fact that our old man was crucified with Christ. Two deductions that he leads us to with the phrase, in order that uh, our old self has been crucified with Christ, in order that, no, number one, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, and number two, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. These are the two things uh, which we studied on last week that inevitably follow our being crucified with Christ. So when we are crucified with Christ, it says our body of sin is brought to nothing and we are no longer enslaved to sin. That is the inevitable result of our being crucified with Christ. Uh, which leads us into verse 7. It says, for, the one, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And again, just in like verse 3 where we examined all the different philosophies regarding baptism and then finding out it wasn't talking about water baptism anyway. Uh, there is a whole lot of debate, a whole lot of disagreement uh, caused by this one verse. So it's essential that we look at it in context. <clears throat> um both in our current section, which we just read, and also more deeply going all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 12, because this is all one section, okay? Uh, that is the context. And if we do not follow Paul's argument step by step, we can never understand his argument. Verse 11 through 13, Paul is going to appeal to us to do something, but in order to for us to respond to that appeal to do something, we have to understand the basis for it. So the only serious problem in the understanding of this verse is the question that in light of our exposition, uh, our exposition being that our old self has been crucified, uh, how do we explain the exhortation found in Ephesians chapter 4? So this is on your handout, or you can turn to it. 
Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> 20 through 24. So we have a comparison here. Uh, what we've been talking about, our old self being crucified, and then Paul says something in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through, through 24. He says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we are exhorted to put off our old self and to put on the new man, but as we have stated over and over, that old self was crucified with Christ once and forever. So how do we approach this tension between those two things? The exact same term, the old self, is used in both places. Well, a good rule of thumb is that when you find the same word or the same term in different parts of the Bible, we always give it the same meaning unless there is some overwhelming reason found in the context for not doing so. So, what might be our overwhelming reason that the old, old self referred to in two separate epistles does not mean the same thing in both of them? Romans 6.6, 6, Paul says, Our old self was crucified. In other words, it is something that has happened to him, something that was done to him, and it was done once and forever. Okay? But in Ephesians, we are exhorted to put off the old self. And so obviously the term cannot mean the same thing in both places. Otherwise, Paul would be contradicting himself, would he not? He cannot tell us to put off something that has already been crucified once and forever. Well, if we continue reading... And I put it in bold so it would make it a little simpler to read. Uh, it becomes obvious that the term as used in Ephesians is a term used as a, uh, to cover the former conduct or behavior that was a character trait of the old self. Paul even says of this old self that it belongs to our former manner of life that is corrupted through deceitful desires. So if you remember, we talked last week about sin still being present in our members. Well, our deceitful desires are one of those members. And so what he's telling us to put off is our former behavior uh, of the old self, rather than putting off the old self in and of itself. You have been born again. Your old man was crucified with Christ. Stop behaving as if the old self is still there. Be what you are. Stop being what you no longer are. And so we find no contradiction, although there are many who do, even though the context makes clear that Ephesians is about conduct and behavior, while Romans is about the old man himself. Not his conduct or his behavior. The two are not the same. So the teaching of verse 6 is that my old self was crucified in order that my body of sin or my old nature might be brought to nothing or made ineffective. The old self was crucified. The old nature was not. But the whole objective of my, being, of my old self being crucified with Christ is that I might be entirely and completely delivered from sin. 
so that I would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, how does all of this help me, you might ask? <clears throat> you don't realize that you yourself are more important than your nature, then you will never be able to understand Paul's teaching here. The single greatest truth for anyone with any honest self-appraisal that we can be told is that our old self is gone. Is everybody here happy that your old self is gone? Okay, all right. So that's the greatest truth that any one of us can be told. The problem of my old nature becomes much easier once I realize that my old self is gone. Again, as we stated last week, the man I was in Adam, the man who was a total slave to sin, that man is gone. I am a new man. Sin is no, sin is no longer in me. It is in my members only. It is in my thoughts. It is in my animal instincts. It is in my deceitful desires but it is not in me. When God looks at me, he only sees what? His dear son. Okay, that's it. So why is this important? Again, our theme for chapters 5 through 8, uh, that is assurance of salvation. So we started all the way back in chapter 5. This is all about assurance of salvation. So many, including myself, find themselves in unhappy times because every time we fall into sin, we raise the question again, am I really a Christian? Anybody but me ever done that? Okay? If I were really a Christian, how could I possibly have thoughts like I have or say things that I do or do things that I do? That's what Paul is battling with here, and which he's going to expound on in chapter 7 when we move on. He says, do not keep raising the whole question of your salvation every time you sin. You yourself, as a being and as a person, in the eyes of God the Father, you yourself are in Christ. Joined with him, united with him, as a branch is united to the vine. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, that's what he's pushing here. But what difference does this viewpoint make? Well, if we truly understand it and we fall into sin, our first response is we don't ask, am I a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. My old self has been crucified I am justified, I am a new man in Christ, I am accepted of God. This sin is not something that affects my salvation. I do not need to be converted all over again. Okay? Church I came out of, we baptize people every year. I mean, there's one of our sister churches at Myrtle Beach, they had an annual Easter baptism in the ocean. Everybody in the church got baptized all over again, every, every year. This sin only reminds me, and I have stated this before, this sin only reminds me of the wrath which I have been saved from. Reminds me that this sin is only in my members, that this body of sin still remains, and it also reminds me that I share 
in a salvation wherein I am promised to be saved from even that. So there is coming a day when even the sin in our members is going to be gone. Now, once we realize that, we are then free to wage war against this sin that is in our members. Free to fight against it. Free to resist it. Free to send the devil fleeing. Free to realize that this sin is not consistent with what I really am. It is inconsistent because I am a Christian. This is not who I am. That old self is gone. Do not bring him back again in your thoughts by wondering whether you are truly a Christian. He is crucified, he is dead, and he is buried, and he is gone forever. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 7. Which is a summary, kind of, of verses 5 and 6. And again, as already stated, there is much debate and disagreement as to what this actually refers to. For the sake of time, I won't go into all the different arguments, but suffice to say that the majority of those arguments stem from the failure to take this statement in its context and to see the actual point that's being made. Most of the debates revolve around that word translated in the ESV as set free. Well, we know for a fact, oh, well, a lot of com commentaries phrase that as has been justified from sin, okay? Because in many places, it is the same Greek word used for justified. Others say it means set free. So if you go to look, some will say this, some will say that. They're not the same. Well, we know for a fact that it cannot mean has been justified from sin. Because Paul's argument this entire time has been that all that has happened to us as a result of our being uh, crucified with Christ... Uh, what happened to him happened to us. Okay, That's the parallel that he's following all the way through. Whatever happens to him happens to us. Uh, what happened to him happened to us in like manner, uh, as it were. When we know for a fact that Christ had no need to be justified from sin. Correct? Um. It also puts the cart before the horse in that we are also uh, should know, we know or we also should know, that our justification came to us prior uh, to our dying in him and being buried and rising again with him. We were justified when? While we were yet sinners, okay? By faith alone. And again, Paul has finished with his teaching on justification. He finished justification in chapter 4. Now he's talking about assurance. So it's not, that word can't mean justification. Um, and it is because he has finished with it that he can go on with his, with his teaching of our hope and our assurance of glory because of our position in Christ. So that is the context. So what is Paul saying here in the context? Well, one thing to note, through the entirety of this chapter, Paul has been talking about the us and the we. Now, all of a sudden, he changes it to one. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is a general statement. He is no longer referring here to those of us who have died with Christ. In fact, notice that he does not even use the phrase with Christ. He just says, for one who has died. This is referring to any man universally who has died. What he is saying here is that when a man dies, he is done with sin. Dead men can't sin. Pretty simple, huh? Dead men are no longer in the realm of sin. Dead men cannot be tempted because they are what? Dead, okay? You can't charge dead men in a court of law. This is just a general statement to give emphasis to what he has already said. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For, he says, this is something that is a universal truth, something which anyone with half a brain should be able to see. Dead men are free from sin. Sin has no more claim over him, no more power over him. A man who has died has been set free from sin. This is a comparative statement to give emphasis to what he has already said uh, verses 6 and 7. So verses 6 and 7 can now be put together like this. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that we might be delivered in every respect from the slavery of sin because every man who has died is entirely free from the power and the reign and the slavery of sin. In other words, because we are united with Christ, we have died with him, and therefore, as is true of any man who dies, we are entirely outside the realm of sin. Which takes us back to verse 2. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? Basically, in effect, telling us, I have demonstrated what I set out to demonstrate. I told you at the beginning that it is impossible that we should continue in sin like we did before we became Christians because we have died to that realm and that rule and that reign of sin. Even though we are still here in the body, even though we know that sin is still in our members, and even though we still do fall into sin, because we have died with Christ, we are saved. We are just as surely saved right now as we shall be when we are in glory. Those already in glory are more happy. Amen. Simply because they no longer have sin in their bodies. They are more happy for sure, but they are not more secure than we are. One of my favorite statements that I tell my kids at school is if you know who you belong to and you know where you're going, it's hard to have a bad day. Um, so we move on to verses 8 through 10. He says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So this is Paul's exposition of the second half of verse 5. 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He's already told us about our having died with Christ and expounded on that in verses 6 and 7. And now he says in verse 8, he says, If that is true, if we have truly died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's something that inevitably follows. Okay, It has to follow. If we have died with him, we will live with him. The we, uh, we believe used here, does not mean that we hope that this will happen. It actually means that we are all well aware of this fact. We are absolutely certain of this fact. So we believe, it's not hope, it's, it's we, we know for a fact. Exactly. Thank you. Um, he says that if we are dead with Christ, then it absolutely follows that we will live with him. Again, this is about our union. If we are really joined with him and everything that happens to him happens to us, then it follows that if we have died with him, we must also rise with him. Now again, there's some disagreement among various commentaries simply because of this word will. Some say that this refers only to our future bodily resurrection. While it does include that future resurrection of the body, that is not the point that Paul is making here. He's not concerned with dealing with something that has not happened yet. He is concerned instead to show what, of, what is true of us right here and right now. The whole objective, once again, being to refute the claim that we can now in the present continue in sin that grace may abound. His entire discussion is in regards to what is true of us in the present. It is true of us in the present that we died with Christ. And because of that, we are no longer in the realm and the territory of sin. In the exact same way, it is true of us now in the present that we live with him. As we stated in verse 4, he says that we are now walking in newness of life. Not in the future, but walking in newness of life right now. In the present, in the world that we are currently in. He clarifies this in verse 11, which we're going to get to next week, Lord willing. When he exhorts these living, breathing Roman Christians... He tells them to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So This is about our current life. It's not about our future life after our resurrection. There is a parallel verse in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. It says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you notice there, Paul does not say that God is going to do this. Right? He says he has already what? He's already done it. Same thing that Paul is saying to us in chapter 6, verse 8 of Romans. It is our recognition and understanding of what we are already are that should affect our conduct and our behavior. 
This has nothing to do with us or our experiences, as so many commentators would have us believe. This is all from chapter 5 all the way through till now. All of this is about our position over and over and over in, in practically every verse. It says, in Christ, with Christ, in him, with him, over and over and over. This is all about our position. Our position is what Paul is ultimately concerned with uh, for us to see. Take, for example, I am my position as a school teacher at Avery County High School. It would be ridiculous for me to go to Mitchell County High School and walk in the front door and say, I'm here to teach, would it not? That's not my position. That's not my realm. Okay? My position is as that little woman's husband and his father and my grandchildren's grandfather. It would be ridiculous for me to go knock on some stranger's door and say, I am here to fill this position now. Would it not? That is not my position. All right? Um, Paul wants us to see what our position is. Our position is we are in Christ. Don't go live in another realm. What happened to Christ happened to us. What happened to Christ happened to us. And until we are clear about that, uh, we will never be clear about our own position. And consequently, we will never have complete victory in our lives. So this is how the entire New Testament deals with us and our problems and our difficulties like many mainstream churches that focus on people's problems and difficulties. Um, the New Testament, on the other hand, never starts with them directly because, of, because what is the ultimate problem? The ultimate problem is your position. The, your position is what leads to all the other problems and difficulties. So the New Testament never starts with them directly. What it tells us to do, always, is to forget about ourselves altogether. Forget all our problems, all our temptations, all our difficulties, and everything else. Forget yourself and look at Jesus Christ. Consider first what has happened to him. Consider first his relationship to sin. Then and only when we have, con uh, when we have that clear in our minds, then the next step is to say, I am joined to him. All that is true of him is true of me. This is not about our subjective moods and our states of beings or our conditions. This is not about us. This is about Christ. So he goes on in verse 9. We know at least, or we should know, as this is common knowledge, says Paul. That's what he's saying here. He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. What does this mean? Why is this a necessary truth about Christ? What is it that makes this so absolutely certain? Christ being raised from the dead. That statement should lead us to ask the question, well, if Christ has been raised from the dead, which we know to be an undeniable fact, who was it that raised him from the dead? already have the answer to that in verse 4 he says which is by the glorious power of the father that statement tells us one very important truth 
The fact that God raised him from the dead is proof positive. Um, excuse me. Got a lot of... The fact that God raised him from the dead is proof positive that God was fully satisfied with the work which his son did upon that cross. The resurrection is God's announcement and proclamation to the whole universe that Christ has completed the work which God sent him into the world to do. It is finished indeed. The work of atonement and redemption and salvation is finished. It's done. The resurrection is the announcement by God to all creation that Christ's sacrifice has been accepted and being raised from the dead will never die again. He has done that once and forever. All emphasizes this fact that death no longer has dominion over him. That term no longer, as Paul uses it, uses it, tells us that there was a time when death did have power over him. That was why he died. But how was it that death came to have power over the very Son of God? 1 Corinthians 15.56 tells us that sting of death is sin. What enables death to have dominion over us is sin. It is sin that produces death. Remember the wages of sin is what? It is sin that produces death. So how could this have happened to the only one who had no sin in his nature? The only one who never sinned at all? Well, the answer is in the glorious message of the gospel. Christ has taken our sins upon himself. This is the only explanation as to how death at any time had any power over Jesus Christ. He took our sins upon himself, and in doing so, he put himself under the penalty of the law. We have to always remember, it is, it is the law that gives sin the power to reign unto death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That is the sequence. How does sin lead to our death? It does so because sin is our breaking of the law. And that law tells us that death is the punishment for that sin. So here then is our Lord and Savior, who was sinless, and death could not touch him. But he took our sins upon himself by identifying himself with us. He took, by taking our sins on himself, he places himself under the law, under its dominion, so death now has power over him. The law states that the punishment for sin is death, and so because he bore our sins, death had power over him. For that reason and that alone, he died. Death has no more dominion over him now. But for that one point in time, it did have, and it killed him. From the moment he became flesh and dwelt among us, born of a woman, born under the law, he was under the power of death. But how can we know that death no longer has that power over him? The answer is in the resurrection. The resurrection is proof of the fact that the law has been satisfied. The resurrection is a declaration that the law has been satisfied. That is why he was raised again for our justification. 
his resurrection means that not only has the law been satisfied, but that, that it, it, he is no longer under the law. He has gone back to the glory from whence he came. And because he has finished with the law, death cannot touch him any longer. Paul clarifies this statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is the one who has actually defeated and conquered that last enemy. He has risen again. He has defeated death completely. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and following. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the point being made here is that, yes, in a physical sense, this is true of the resurrection. But it is also true in a spiritual sense. Christ has already conquered the last enemy, and he has done so for us. That's why we need to have no fear of death. That is why we can be sure and certain of our resurrection. That is our future. But for the moment, in this ninth verse, we are looking only at Christ. Only at what Paul is, assert what Paul is asserting is that Christ has, really has done this. Christ really has done this. Death really has no more dominion over him. Death never shall have dominion over him. He has rendered death null and void in every sense of the word. So for the moment, we are not thinking about ourselves at all. All we can see is this, that Jesus Christ was once under the power of death. But that is no longer the case. It is finished, and his rising from the dead is a proclamation that death is conquered and defeated by him and that he will never die again. He came here to deal with the problem of sin, and he has done so, and he is now back in the glory from whence he came. He no longer has a relationship to the whole realm of sin in that way. That is the assertion in verse 9. Then in verse 10, he puts it even more clearly. For, says Paul, meaning that he's going to give us an explanation. For, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, contrary to many commentaries, Paul is not telling us here that we need to die to sin. Okay? Again, forget about yourself for the moment. Paul is talking about Jesus Christ, and he says that he died to sin. Not died for sin, as some take this to mean, uh, which he did, but that is not Paul's point here. Uh, remember, our parallel, parallel is that what happened to Christ happened to us. So if Paul is saying here that Christ died for sin, that that, then that means what? That I died for sin. That doesn't work, does it? There is no way that we can die for our own sins. We do not and cannot die for our sins. Christ alone died for our sins. Paul says here that Christ died to sin. Christ died to sin, not the power of sin as we know it in our lives, not died to indwelling sin, 
not died to the liability to sin. It does not mean that he died to the force of sin and the evil power in our lives that drags us down. Okay? You'll find all of these ex explanations if you read enough commentaries. You're going to find every one of those. Does not mean any of those things. For one simple reason, none of those things were ever true of him. There was never any power of sin in his life, never any liability to sin as far as he was concerned, never such a thing as indwelling sin. He was not a sinner. There was no sin in him, completely separate from sin. So it can't mean any of those things. The term Paul uses is that he died to sin. And it means the same thing that it meant in verse 2 and meant in verse 6 and means in verse 7. Again, Paul is just restating once again so that we can be very clear about it. This central and cru crucial statement in verse 2, how shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? Died to the realm and to the rule and to the reign of sin. It means that we have died not only to the condemnation of sin, which we were under, but to the whole realm and rule and reign of sin. Same thing in verse 6 where he says our old self was crucified with him. And in verse 7 where he tells us that one who has died has been set free from sin. Not justified from sin, but freed from the whole realm and rule and reign of sin once and for all. That's not the world we live in anymore. Once and, once and once only. Once and forever. Never to be repeated the once and forever is illustrated for us, and that's why I have all of these listed on your paper, okay? This once and forever is illustrated for us in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In, in chapter 9, we have several illustrations. He says in verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verses 25 through 26 nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year uh, with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once and forever. Once and forever. Then again in verse 28, So Christ having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly, eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10, we see the same word used three times. In verse 10, he says, And by that will we have been and by that will we have been sanctified through offering, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, which is emphasized by the contrast that we find in verse 11. He says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See the contrast there? Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has done it by one offering, never to be repeated. Once and forever, he has perfected them that are being sanctified. So a great pronouncement was made in verse 8. It was demonstrated in verse 9, and the full explanation was given in verse 10. And so the point we have come to is this. That he is showing the finality of what Christ has done. How can I be sure that Christ, being raised from the dead, is no longer subject to death? The answer, he says, is that when he died to sin, he did it once and forever. And the work is so complete, the work is so complete, that there is never any need to come back and do it again. The priest in the Old Testament had to keep doing the same thing day after day after day. Can you imagine? I don't know if any of you ever thought about this. Think about the population of Israel and the priest making those sacrifices day after day after day after animal after animal after animal, the blood running like a river. same sacrifices made day after day blood that could never take away sins Paul says not so here because he is the son of God it needs no repetition and there will be no repetition this was done once for all so as a summary verse 5 there are a certain group of people who are given a promise that group of people are those who have been united to Christ in a death like his. That promise being that those certain people will be also united with Christ in a resurrection like his. Paul then spends the next five verses through verse 10 telling us exactly what Christ has done and what our position is because of what has been done for us. Our position being where it is we stand in the eyes of God. Okay, That is our position. Where do you stand in the eyes? of God that's your position um, our body of sin our body of sin has been brought to nothing doesn't matter we are in Christ that's what he sees he doesn't see the sin we commit we are no longer enslaved to sin we are now free to decide if that's what we want to do or not Be certain to understand that there is nothing here that is telling us what we need to do. There is nothing in this entire section that is telling us something that we need to do. This is what we already are because of what Christ has done. That's what this is about. There is no encouragement to do something or to be something. It is finished. It's just an encouragement for us to understand that those who are in Christ... If you really are in Christ, those who are in Christ could never entertain such a preposterous idea such as continuing in sin that grace may abound. So we'll move on next, uh, move forward next week as we complete Paul's argument in verse 10. 
where we're going to finalize this grand deduction about ourselves. And then we're going to receive Paul's first exhortation to do something, maybe. His exhortation as to what it looks like in practice to live our lives to God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, our position. Achieved by anything that we have done, not achieved by anything we've said, but achieved by Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to understand our position so that we can face what the devil in the world and flesh throws at us, knowing that we are secure in you. Uh, Lord, be with us this morning as we continue the remainder of our service. Uh, may everything done and said be